This morning is May 1st, it's 2011. Our message is uh, titled Malek Olam. This is Hebrew for King of the Universe. Some people say King of the World, but the Hebrew word does not mean this ball of dirt. It means everything that has been created, period. So uh, turn with me to Psalm 8. Tell me when you're there. One person, there. Three people. <laughs> We're going to have to write in Hebrew, Mario. Uh, I would say M-E-L-E-K. There. Uh, and then the word Ha, H-A, Olam, O-L-A-M. Malek Ha Olam. Uh, the Ha functions kind of like a of the. <laughs> you know, Malek Ha Olam. Um, we're in Psalm 8. Let's pick up with this. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. Because of your enemies, to silence the foe and the adventure. When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels or the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. All flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our God, how majestic is Your name in all of the earth. One thousand years before Jesus walked the earth in flesh, David began to contemplate a question. A question that should make us feel very, very special. In all of creation, why is God so concerned about a man? Why would He watch your ways? Why would He care for you? Turn with me to Hebrews 2. Tell me when you're there. In Hebrews 2, pick up with me in verse 5. It is not to angels that He has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under Him, God left nothing that was not subject to Him. Yet at the present, we don't see everything subject to Him. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because He suffered death, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. Before I read this next line, as we're talking about this, this begins with a question a thousand years before Jesus walked the earth. Why do you care so much about man? And then the writer to this Messianic community begins to point that he cared enough about man to set man above everything. And right now we don't see that. But we see Jesus, a man, also God, set above everything. This is a source for hope. It shows us where we're going. It shows us our destiny. But listen to the extent to which he went to do this. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists. Wow. Through whom and for whom everything exists. Should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family, so that Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He goes on to say that He shared flesh and blood because we did. It was not enough for God to put one man above everything else. He did it even through suffering. He did it through making Him weak, hungry, tired, feel pain. All of those things so that He would experience humanity. What does that say? <laughs> Lord God, what is man that you're mindful of Him? How, how mindful of man is God? He was so mindful of man that He limited Himself to become one so that He would know what your daily life was like. This doesn't sound like a detached deity, does it? 
Does it sound like an uninvolved God? What is man that you're mindful of? I have to tell you, to rule the known universe and the unknown universe and anything else that is out there and be concerned with man is kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? He called him the author of their salvation. Did y'all see that? Yes. Did you see it? Yes. Thank you, Brandon. <laughs> you know, authors don't write books about things that they don't like, right? I mean, anybody in here hate microbiology? <laughs> okay, a couple of you. We've got a college student. So how did you feel if I told you write, you know, 66 volumes on microbiology? Probably not real good. Anybody in here uh, want to spend years, centuries even, pouring into a subject you don't care about at all? No. What is man that you're mindful of? And you can tell what an author cares about by what they write about. The book that you're holding is written by God through man. In it, we can tell what God cares about. Could you agree with that? Yes. How about this one? Turn with me to Genesis 1. That would be an easy one to find. You go to the far left, if you hit the table of contents or an editor's endorsement, you went too far. There. There. How'd you like to be the editor of the Bible? <laughs> yeah, how about that? Better read the last chapter before you edit the first. So are you all with me in Genesis 1-1? Yes. So you're going to write a book about something that you're interested in. You're, you're going to share. You're going to share your heart. You're going to share your expression. What does that first verse say? In the beginning, what? God created. God created the heavens and the earth. You know, this is a little bit like saying, um, I went to Paris. I stood at the Eiffel Tower. Let me tell you about a doghouse I saw. He created the heavens and the earth. He doesn't mention the heavens anymore after this. This book is not about the heavens. What's it about? The earth. The earth. He starts off with something broad, huge, amazing. The heavens. I mean, how big are the heavens? Let's think about that for a minute. You know, I, I got a, uh, a quote from a book in the library here that, that you should check out. I told Nolan to get it today. If he didn't, then you should beat him to it. He'll be faster next time. It's written by Grant Jeffries. It's called Signature of God. I want you to hear this. This, this, is, this is about the vastness of the heavens. Because our God is the Malakulam. He's the king of everything that has been created. Listen to where this starts. The unaided human eye can see and count 1,029 stars. With a pair of binoculars or an inexpensive telescope, you can see 3,300 stars. In the last few years, modern telescopes have allowed us to view over 200 million stars in our own galaxy called the Milky Way. Let's start there for a minute. This is uh, the only thing that's more perplexing than 200 million stars and trying to bring that in is our federal deficit. <laughs> but for a moment, let's think 200 million. Okay? This is our galaxy, 200 million. Now, now that you have your mind wrapped around Milky Way, 200 million, let's, let's look a little further. As late as 1915, astronomers believed that our galaxy composed the entire universe. Then in 1925, the great astronomer, Edwin Hubble, y'all recognize his name from the telescope, right? Used the world's largest telescope at the time to view whole new sets of galaxies and stars that were more than six million trillion miles from the Earth. I, I thought that was a word little kids made up. Million trillion miles from the Earth. During the last century, very powerful telescopes of astronomers revealed the known universe contains over 10 billion galaxies like the Milky Way. The Milky Way itself has 200 million stars in it, but there are 10 billion Milky Ways. However, in the last few months, scientists have used the Hubble telescope to focus on a tiny point in space so small that it is equal to focusing your eye on an area the size of a grain of sand held at arm's length. They focused on the smallest point of space that they could examine. And look what they found. After intensely examining this very small area of space, the astronomers determined that it contained an additional 1,500 galaxies, each the size of our Milky Way. They were astonished to discover that the universe is more than five times larger than anyone had previously believed. 
they now know that the known universe contains more than 50 billion galaxies, with each galaxy containing 200 million stars. Now there is a few of you out there that are mathematical that might be able to wrap your mind around this. For me, it's just like, well, we'd say in Louisiana, a whole, whole, whole lot. <laughs> Trying to wrap your mind around what this is for us common folks. If you're looking at your Bible or a sheet of paper, take your bulletin. Hold your bulletin up. That is an 8 by 11 sheet of paper when it's opened up. At the top of your bulletin, I don't have one or I would... Uh, let me see that one. At the top of your paper, up here towards the top, where your finger is holding it, this represents the sun. Nine inches down, which would be about here, this would be the earth. Nine inches from the sun. Now, every inch represents something. It represents 10 million miles. That would be to scale. This finger is the sun. This finger is the earth. 10 million miles being represented in every inch. It's 90 million miles. You want to get to the next closest star. I guess this would be 199,999,000 star in our galaxy. The closest one. You would have to get in your car and drive 40 miles from this finger down the paper with every inch of every mile representing 10 million miles. It is so far away, it's called Alpha Centauri, it is so far away that although light travels, help me friend, 186,000 miles per second, second, every second light is traveling 186,000 miles, it still would take four years to get there. Yeah. And you thought I drove fast. <laughs> How big is the universe? So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we're going to talk about something smaller than an electron hovering around a piece of dust called the earth. I mean, there is no way to get the scale right for how small of a focus God is examining in on in this Bible when we talk about the vastness of the universe. But the Bible is not even about the earth. What does he go on to say? In the second day, he starts to talk about an atmosphere. In the third day, what's he talk about? Dry land, plants. Do you know how many plant species are on this planet? Just plants. Okay, we're not talking about invertebrates and vertebrates and all of those things. Just plants. Number of species, kinds of plants. There's 260,000 that have been identified. Yeah. You know, I thought my mom did a lot of gardening. Mm. 260,000 species. He goes on to create animals after that. There's more than 2 million species of identified animals on this planet. 2 million. You know how many they think that there are, though? Over 100 million. Yeah, they're making a lot of progress. They've identified 2% of all animals on the earth in various sizes, of course. How about that? So the Bible then begins with the vastness of space and says God created everything that is out there. In Hebrew, this is Bereshit. In the very beginning, God created everything that you see. But let's not talk about that. Let's talk about the ball of dirt that we live on. That's a narrow focus. And then on the ball of dirt, there's 260,000 kinds of plants, but we don't want to talk about them. There's more than a hundred million species of animals. But we're not going to talk about that. Who is he going to talk about? Now keep in mind, this is not like singling somebody out of a crowd of millions. That wouldn't even be proportional. This would be more like singling somebody out of infinity that you personally had a relationship with every one of them. See, he designed and he made everything. But where is his attention? It's on you. His mindful of man. Are you feeling special yet? I didn't. What does the scripture go on to say? He numbered the hairs of your... Yeah, and for me it changes every day. I can't even brush it or wash it too hard. How about that? In all the bigness of the universe, our God focused on the earth. And all the bigness of the earth, He didn't focus on the atmosphere or the order of creation, not the fish, birds, livestock, two million. 
species of animals. He focused on man. Now let me ask you something. We could argue about when Genesis 1-1 occurs. We could do that if we wanted to. We could go on to talk about how long were Adam and Eve in the garden. Right? The first man and woman, what are they best known for? Let's just be honest. Where they been blowing it, sin it, right? So the Bible spends all of what? One chapter on that. Let's talk about God's crowning creation. Is it the universe? No. No. Is it all the plants? No. Is it is it all the animals? No. It's it's man. And now let's talk about men. Is it is it uh, all men that the Bible is about? No. We start off with one and he sends who's the next major figure in the Bible? Noah. It's not just about men. What does the very first verse about Noah say in the Bible? Noah was a what kind of man? Mm. Noah was a righteous man. I want you to understand something. When the Psalms say that God's ears are attentive to the righteous and his eyes are always on them, out of the billions and billions and billions of stars, out of the vastness of the creation, out of the hundreds of millions of forms of insects and plants and animals and everything else, His eye is upon the man who is trying to walk with Him. Now, where do you fit in that spectrum? What an amazing thing. Turn with me to Genesis 5. The vastness of space, the infinite forms of plant and animal life. This book is about man. And it's not just about any man. It's about righteous men. In Genesis 5, I have to get there. We've done something. You know, have you ever... Who in here has seen Seinfeld? Don't lie. Come on now, really? There are people in here that have never seen Jerry Seinfeld. You didn't watch a Subway commercial or something? No American Express or whatever else he does. Really, some of you do. Who knows who Jerry Steinfeld is? Okay, there's a famous episode. A yada yada episode. <laughs> Hebrew, that means I know, I know. And so in Yiddish, it became yada yada, right? And what do you yada yada? You yada yada a part of a story that is just, you don't need to tell, right? You don't need to tell it because it would be laborious. It'd be tedious. So I went to the store and yada, yada, I got in the car and went home, right? That meant you didn't need to know that I bought laundry detergent. You didn't need to know that I got two or three Snickers bars. <laughs> Chased it with a Yoo-Hoo. You didn't need to know about that. That was all included in the yada, yada. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. What does it say? When the Bible begins with the first man, Adam, we have a single chapter devoted to his fall. And then we skip over ten generations of men and pick up with one who is righteous. What does that say? That's why God said, I made man. Uh, they didn't, well, yada, yada. Let's talk about a righteous man. I mean, and the amount of time that goes by during God's yada, yada of ten generations, it's over 1,600 years. Yeah, think about that. That's something like, you know, seven, eight times our country's age. God went, I made a man and yada, yada. Let's talk about a righteous guy, okay? <laughs> what is the author interested in, saints? Righteousness. He's interested in the crowning jewel of his creation. A man who is in right standing with him. Now, I don't want to totally skip over these men. This is, this is, uh, this is too good not to. Uh, you, you know something about Adam. You heard Seth's name. How many of you stay awake at night wondering about Enosh, the third uh, in the line? <laughs> How about Mahalel? You're like, oh, is he speaking in tongues? Right. How about Jerry? You thought that was the Subway commercial. <laughs> Did you know that Jerry was a biblical name? Yes. How about Enoch? Enoch is the seventh human being in the line of the righteous. Seth. You know the only thing, there's two things Enoch is known for. Can you name one? Can somebody shout out one? He walked with God. He walked with God and was no more. What does Jude 14 say about him? It's the only other real mention of Enoch in all of the Bible. Hmm. He was the seventh from Adam and a revivalist. Men began to call upon the name of the Lord in his death. We skip over all of that. 
We even skip over the revivalist. He gets a single word. Because we wanted to get to seven. What all God's efforts are aimed at. A singular righteous man. Have you ever wondered about your life? Like, if you had to, if you had to see your life put on video. <laughs> Some of you have lived a long time. So what would you have to do to get your life onto a DVD? Let's just say your DVD would contain four hours. Have you heard the expression, that's not my finest hour? What an understatement, right? You've got you to gotta cram your life into to four hours. What are you going to yada yada? What parts are going to stand out? Because in everything that God could concentrate on, everything that He could communicate to mankind, He started in one place. I'd like to talk to you about a righteous man. What was the condition of the earth during Noah's day? Full of evil. Full of wickedness. It filled God's heart with pain. But he didn't talk about that a great deal. He just mentions it in one line. Yeah, it hurt. But let me tell you about my righteous man. What do you think God's interested in about your life? He's interested in you being a righteous man. Now, by the way, uh, you can't skip over these genealogies in the Bible. They're full of things. Did you know that these Hebrew names all have meaning? They tell a story. Every one of them tells a story. When Enoch, the revivalist, had a son, he named him Methuselah. Methuselah means standard for judgment. Or some people say, when I die, judgment comes. That's kind of one of those retroactive definitions, though. His name means I'm a standard. That's really what it means. Methuselah was the eighth in line. He's followed by Lamech. You know almost nothing about Lamech. And then the tenth in the line is Noah. His name means God the Comforter. We have a revivalist who got a revelation that a man's life would be the standard. And during the time that God flooded the entire world, killed every man, woman, child, bird, animal, except what was on the ark. What did he name a man? God's comfort. What was the comfort of the earth? The one righteous man. What is God interested in? What is the author trying to tell us? What really matters? What an interesting thing. When you begin to look at this, you need to know something. The earth was full of all kinds of things. I mean, Genesis 5, verse 20. 5, verse 20 through 22. We have some names. Again, names that you probably are not staying awake at night thinking about. Right? I mean, how many of you have known a jabal in your life? <laughs> jabal. It's Arabic for uh, mountain. How about that? Of course, this is not Arabic. This is Hebrew. Jabal. What is Jabal known for? You've got a Bible. What's he known for? Herds living in tents, right? That's, that's Jabal's legacy. Herds and living in tents. I mean, what do you want written on your tombstone, right? He lived in tents. He's the father of all who were herdsmen. But you need to think about this. This is the beginning of the human race. This guy figured out how to live a nomadic or Bedouin lifestyle and focus on herds, the business of the day. You might say that he was the father of business. How about the next guy? Who's he? Jubal. What are y'all not going to talk to me today? Don't mad at me? Genesis 5, 20 through 22? No. No? I'm sorry. 4, 20 through 22. No wonder we Well, see, that's why you got to talk to me. Well, look, why don't I do this? We'll read it. Then nobody can be upset. Anna gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who played the harp and the flute. Zillah also had a son named Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Nama. What we have here is we have three boys. We have three boys who are the fathers of certain practices in humanity. This is prior to the flood. It's when the earth is being developed and being filled with all kinds of things. The first one, the father of the Bedouin herdsman, he could be likened to a titan of industry. 
He figured out how to move his flocks around, to live wherever he wanted to live, to kind of claim the whole earth as his own. The second one, what did he do? Father of music, arts, arts and music, culture. What a beautiful thing. The third one, forged all kinds of metals. He was a metal worker. Say, oh, well, he's a welder. No, it's a little more than that. You know, somebody had to figure out the specific heat of metals and elements. Somebody had to find out at what level they bonded. Somebody had to figure out how to take ore out of the ground. And this is the science and technology phase of humanity. So what we have here is we have industry or business. We have uh, arts, crafts, culture. We have science and technology. God mentions all of that. How much time does He spend doing it? Yeah. Three Two verses. Yeah, Three men's names. <coughs> By the way, what happened to all of those guys? Did you know that Proverbs 10.25 says, The storm comes and it washes the wicked away, but the righteous stand forever? The only thing that God thought to preserve, the only thing that was worthwhile in an entire creation, was that which was righteous and that which wanted to be included in the righteous house. Isn't that worth thinking about? What do you spend your life building? Because this world was full of business, full of science and technology, full of music and arts. Why do those things exist, by the way? They're supposed to glorify God. They're supposed to magnify righteousness. They're supposed to assist in the understanding of what it means to live a full life in the kingdom. But you know all of those men who that we're, we're descended from? Okay. See, in righteousness, all of those things can exist and should exist for righteousness' sake. But if those things exist apart from righteousness, they are worthless. Now, the earth teaches us this. You know why? God flushed the toilet. He did. And that's what was in the bowl. But let me ask you something. Do we have business today? Yes. Do we have arts and sciences today? Yes. So the problem wasn't the arts and sciences. In fact, who had to be the father of all of those things in its most basic sense? Noah and his family. Because everybody else had been washed away. What is the lesson to humanity then? All God needs, period, is one righteous seed. That's it. But does the Bible stop with Noah or does it move on to other righteous people? He goes on. We skip from Noah almost straight to Abraham. 2000 B.C., 2000 years after the garden, to the forming of God's righteous nation. What does this tell us, saints? In all the vastness of space, in all the vastness of creation, God is interested in men, but not just any man. He's interested in a righteous man. And then with a righteous man, He wants to do something. He wants to make a righteous nation. He wants to build a righteous community. Why are you here? You know, there was a car salesman that I worked with in Baker, Louisiana that was unashamed about it. He belonged to his church because he would not survive the winter, he said, in the car business without that kind of network. I'd get washed away in a flood, friends. That will not survive. How about this with me? Pick up in Genesis 6. We're going to start there, probably in verse 9. I'm going to come back to your bulletins. I hope I remember too in the long. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is two verses that summarize a man's life. And where do we start off with the man's life? He was righteous. He walked with God. And he had sons. In this we find all the commands for the human race. I want you to think about this. What was Adam and Eve told? In Genesis 1.28, they were told what? I want you to be fruitful, to multiply, to go subdue the earth. They were already in right standing. God wanted them to be righteous. He wanted them to have righteous actions, i.e. walking, and He wanted them to multiply. This is what God required. 
Micah 6.18. Who knows this one? What does uh, God require of you, O man? What is it? To walk? To act? Humbly. And to love? Mercy. Three things again. Let's talk about it. How is it that you act justly? You have to be in right standing with God. Just like Noah. How is it that you walk humbly? You have to be walking with God. Ooh, what about love mercy? What's that have to do with sons? Come on, you have to stretch on this one, but I promise you'll get it when it's there. What does loving mercy have to do with sons? When you don't love mercy, you abort all those that you should have been multiplying. You know why? You disqualify. He's no good. You know what he did to me. But mercy says, no, no, there's still work. I can still rehabilitate. It can still work. What is God looking for from mankind? He's looking for someone who will stand in righteousness. He's looking for someone that will walk with Him. Did you know that in Hebrew, they don't believe God? Isn't that strange? Are you, are you upset with me for saying that? They don't believe God. They walk with Him. Turn with me to Psalm 1-1 for a second. Then we're coming right back to Genesis. Are y'all very sedate today? <laughs> Sober minded. Sober minded. Better than the alternative. To the Hebrew, belief is demonstrated by action. If you believe God, you do something. Listen to Psalm 1 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It goes on to describe its life. He's not a man who walks with wicked, so who does he walk with? God. For that reason, Enoch in Genesis 5.24 walked with God. Noah in Genesis 6.9 walked with God. In Genesis 49.15, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob walked with God. In the book of Deuteronomy, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 times, God says, walk in the commands of the Lord. Our God is looking for someone who gets put in right standing with Him and then carries out the actions that God says. We call that walking. But that's not all He wants. He wants somebody who's in right standing with Him, who carries out His actions, and thus multiplies God's kingdom as sons. Yeah. Jesus was never married, but how many sons has He brought the Father? Think about it. We're all there. So we're not just talking about natural multiplication, although that's a part of it. If nobody has children, we're going to be in trouble. Sometimes study birth rates. You'll find out we're facing an interesting problem with Islam. You know why? Americans are selfish beyond belief. So, so selfish. We don't want our bodies messed up. We don't, we don't want to not be able to afford a 20 ounces of coffee. We, what we really want is whatever we want. But what our God has called us to do is be in right standing with Him. To walk in the way that He would, i.e. carry out His actions. He's called us to multiply ourselves. That's not an arcane idea, it's the only idea. Let's be honest. God washed away the entire world. Arts, music, science, technology, everything. It started with a man who would do that thing and that thing only. What does that tell us? It's the most important thing. It is the most important thing. You know, on this subject of yada, 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 I asked you about a, about a DVD in your life, right? <clears throat> Noah lived 350 years after the flood. That's a long life. He was 600 years old when the floodwaters came. What's that tell you? He died at 950, right? You guys are better at math than me. Do you know when the story of Noah's life first shows up, period? He's 500 years old. Mm. Yada, yada. What happened to year 499? God picks up with the story about Noah when his sons were born. You know why? Righteousness is great, but if it stays only with one man, how long is its life? Our God picks up the story with Noah when he had Shem, Ham, and Japheth because now righteous would be multiplied. I want you to think about this in a New Testament sense. In a New Testament sense, it is great that Jesus is righteous. I mean, that is great, but what's that do for you? It only does something for you if you become a son of this. Right? 
It only does something for you if you become like Him. The point was not that God could make a righteous man. He had done that before. Adam was righteous when he made him. The point was that He could make a man. He could be the man that He made and make other men righteous through Him. This is our calling, saints. The calling is that Matthew Pirro would be remade. And that in remaking Matthew Pirro, everybody else who bumped into Matthew Pirro would suddenly have access to righteousness. Not ascend to his creed. They wouldn't say, Matthew, tell me what you believe. They would watch to see what he did and they would pattern their lives after him. And in patterning their lives after him, they would set an example that others would follow. And thus, from one righteous man, we begin to build a community, a nation. This is the plan, the goal. This is what is supposed to happen. And we've reduced it to attending church and listening to some bloated bin bag. <laughs> we have. It's membership. Get your USDA stamp as a Christian and move on. Please throw some change in the plate on the way out the door. This is not Christianity. This is not what God intended. He cares so much about the universe that He sent His Son into it to be the one righteous man when none other existed. And then that one righteous man walked with Him even when it cost His life. And because it cost His life, if you believe on Him, you become a son. This is the three-part plan of God. Will righteousness be preserved on the earth? Will it be expressed in action? And will it multiply itself? You know, you get to answer that question because you're responsible for your house. You're responsible for your life. Does righteousness exist in Is it expressed in your actions? And is it multiplying itself? I want to tell you, when I was in school, the 75 was a failure. I don't know what they're doing now. But if only two of three are working, we're not achieving God's plan. So while I'm righteous, well, good, we got 25% of it right. Well, I'm righteous and, and I do some righteous things. Okay, well, we're up to 50. We need to be living in a way that multiplies itself. Are you living out loud or are you hiding in a corner? Has the lion intimidated you? Have you decided that you just aren't good enough to do this and that this is for some other person that's bad? Please don't look. If that's, if that's what you believe, if you're here today and you think you are not good enough to be here, please, whatever you do, don't look to your left. Don't look to your right. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to find people who are greatly flowing. And for God's sake, don't look forward. What are we going to do with this? Well, then we need a righteous man who was not righteous of his own accord. We need somebody who was credited with righteousness. We need someone who would be identified with God and walk rightly with Him and multiply. Are you beginning to get a picture here that all comes from a couple verses in Genesis? I hope you are. How about this? Let's turn then to 2 Peter 3. In 2 Peter 3, we have a, a really interesting verse. Verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Did you know slowness was a word? It's in the Bible, it's a word now. Slowness. I can think of a lot of things that that describes. My children, when I tell them to do something. <laughs> the rate at which I walk away from a buffet. I think we are to admit we're wrong. Slowness. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Everybody to come to repentance. Why is the Lord patient? Why is this whole program taking so long? Come on now, have you never been in a situation, let's just say raising children, 
where you were frustrated at the slow pace. Yeah. I mean, you wanted to get on to the fun stuff, right? Are we ever going to get out of diapers and vomit? Yeah. <laughs> but what's happening that whole time? You're interacting with your child. You're becoming it. You'll be able to look at them one day and say, Do you know that I gave birth to you at nine pounds and eight ounces? And I changed your diapers all those years. You're gaining experience of each other. Why does the Lord delay in His return? He's gaining experience of us. He wants to walk with us. You know, that what I didn't read you in Hebrews 2 was that He experienced our humanity so that He would be able to sympathize with us. How selfish is it to say, well, now I've got right with God. Forget everybody else. This denies that God wants a righteous man who walks with Him who multiplies Himself. So I want to show you the extent. Do you have your bulletin? Yeah. I want to show you the extent to which God understands slowness. In the top right corner of your bulletin, you have 187, don't you? Yeah. In Genesis, and I'm getting back there now, it would be the fifth chapter. That's I'm lying to you, like I did earlier. The fourth chapter. Somebody asked me one time, why do you say you rarely lie when you preach? I can't say it never happens. In the fifth chapter, look at verse 25. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. Methuselah is number eight in line before Noah. He's 187 years old when he became the father of Lamech. Read verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah. Well, this means that Methuselah was 187 years old when he became the father of Lamech. Lamech was 182 years old when he became the father of Noah. And how old was Noah when the floodwaters came? 600 years old. Add those up for me. Somebody with much better math skills than me. 187, 182, 600. What do you got? You got 960 what? 969. Some of you really. Y'all are boy, y'all educated in the same place I was. I got thrown out of the public school, praise God. They put me in a private school where I did have to learn. 969 years. You know what's significant about 969 years? It is the longest lifespan in the Bible. There was one guy that God seemed unwilling to let him die. Like He stretched out his life as far as possible. No other human being before or since has ever lived quite that long. 969 years. Adam lived 954 Noah lived 950. Abraham lived 175. There's some old cats in the Bible. But nobody ever lived as long as this one. 969 years. This is because when the seventh from Adam, Enoch, had a baby boy and he named him Methuselah, which meant the standard for judgment, or when I die, judgment comes. He lived 969 years. You know why? Because God was not willing that any would perish. And He stretched out that man's lifespan longer than any other human being before or since because He did not want any to perish. When you add up the years in Genesis, you find it was 969 years. When you read the age of Methuselah in Genesis, it says that he lived to be 969 years old. Altogether, Methuselah lived 969 years and then he died. He died in the flood. Or he died the year of the flood. Probably the hour of the flood. What is this message communicating to you? Out of all that is in the universe, God was concerned with this little speck that we call earth. Out of everything that is on the earth, plants, animals, atmosphere, He was concerned with man. Out of all mankind, He was concerned with the one who would be in right standing with him, who would carry out his beliefs by walking, and who would multiply sons. And when it comes time to deal with man, God stretches out the clock as far as possible before judgment. 
Come on, does this sound like an angry, vengeful God of the Older Testament? There's no such thing as an angry, vengeful God of the Older Testament. There's no division between the character of Jesus and the written word of the Older Testament. This was called heresy in the first century and second century, and today is just, you know, common practice. How many people do you know that have said that they've read the Bible, but you know they haven't? What they mean by I've read the Bible is I've read a few lines from the Bible. But they say, oh, I've read that, I know that. How many people do you think know this? See, if you want to know what an author is interested in, you need to read his work. And it's not enough to read the preface and make a decision about the book. How do you like to know everything that Albert Einstein knew by just reading the preface to one of his papers? Does it work that way? Well, what happens when God writes a book? He's trying to communicate something to his saints. He's trying to communicate that he loves you. That you're special to him. That if you're not righteous, he'll credit you with righteousness. But he expects you to walk with him and to multiply yourself. How do you feel about that? It's not uncommon for a man who wants to win the affections of a woman to show up with gifts. Right? Is there any guys out there with some game? Showed up with flowers? Some chocolates in? Okay, we got one guy with game. <laughs> Nobody knows how to work their craft out there. Kenny, do you really have Angelique sitting next to you and you've never had any game? I bet you bought her something in her life. What does it say that the most precious substance on the planet was spent on your behalf? The blood of Jesus. What does that say? What does it say when everything that has been created, the vastness of space, everything else, pales in comparison with the way God feels you? What does that say? What does it say when he creates everything and then says, okay, you rule it. And you blow it. And he says, it's okay, we'll start again. We'll figure it out. And look, don't be discouraged that you blew it. I'm going to hang a promise in the sky that says, I'll never whip up on you like this again. I tell you, the ancient flood story shows up in more than 230 cultures recorded. Isn't that, isn't that wild? I mean, the ancient flood story is not just a Genesis thing. Genesis is the correct copy. It is uh, the divine inspired word of God. It is the story of Bereshith, the in the beginning. But the Babylonians have one. The Assyrians have one. What scientists call the Neo-Assyrians have one. The Epic of Gilgamesh is the Neo-Assyrian version. The Erudai is the Sumerian version. The Erastus is the Babylonian version. And the Berusus is a later Babylonian version. And you know what they all contain? Every one of them, even the corrupted versions? The story of one righteous man that survived the flood. Or occasionally a righteous couple. What does that tell us? By the way, when you look at all 230 flood stories that are out there, right? The 230 that were preserved for us, you know which ones are closest to the Genesis account? I mean, the ones that are the closest spot on to the Genesis account, the ones that occurred in proximity to Mesopotamia. In other words, the ones that were local to the event's origin. The further you got away from it, the further man went from that area, the stranger the stories got. Think about this. If you want to know about 9-11, do you go to the Congo, find somebody in the furthest bush that you can, and say, tell me about 9-11, or would you want to go to New York? It's possible that they know about it out there. They might say a flying machine hit a building. Yeah, But they wouldn't tell you it was an American Airlines jet, because they might not know. If you want to see the flood stories and see a contradiction in it, you can. I mean, there are plenty of scholars out there that will do that. But you know what I see? The people closest to the event all tell a story that sounds remarkably like the right story. The Bible. Isn't that amazing? The Epic of Gilgamesh has a hero in it. His name is not Noah because they changed his name. By the way, Noah's mother didn't call him Noah either. We changed his name. Noah. <laughs> yeah, that's harder to say, isn't it? Mm. I'm here, Noah. <laughs> Noah, must I beat you? She didn't have to say that, it was righteous. 
Okay, let's do this then. Let's go back to 2 Peter. I want you to uh, read with me 2 Peter 3. We're going to pick up a little later in the story, and we're going to close soon, mostly because I'm hungry. I also am, am trying to adjust myself to something. I've been preaching now almost 18 years. Um, I was ordained in 1997, so that was a few years ago. I've been pastoring a church continuously since 2000. And it's just now dawning on me that I get to do this week after week. So I don't have to tell you everything I know in a single sitting. <laughs> good? Your butts will thank you later. <laughs> Second Peter 3. Let's pick up in verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in heat. But in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. What does that last line say? Because it's the important one. The home of righteousness. The home of righteousness. Our King created everything that there is for one reason and one reason only. He wanted to make a home where righteousness would flourish, where it would multiply, where it would be walked in, where it would be the currency of the kingdom. He wanted a righteous dwelling. We call that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. It is where righteousness is accepted, walked in, lived in, and multiplied. This is why Jesus could say the kingdom is within you. Our theologians have made it somewhere else far, far away. If God had wanted to tell a story about somewhere else far, far away, the Bible would have said, now in the beginning, God made the earth and the heavens. Now the heavens were, but He didn't. Because this is ultimately about a righteous man walking in righteousness and multiplying that righteousness. The last thing that I wanted to tell you, and I'll probably kick myself for not telling you everything else, but... The last thing that I wanted to tell you is Noah is the first mention in all of the Bible of an altar. And we know that Cain and Abel brought sacrifices, but there's no altar mention. Uh, we know that God made for Adam and Eve uh, skin. We know it. He, he, he brought them garments of skin. But no altar is mentioned there. The first time an altar is mentioned in all of the Bible is in Noah's life. Now, if you were not so intimately familiar with this story that, you know, you had it memorized, because I know all of you did. If you knew that a flood was coming on the world, you had, oh, from your 500th birthday to just after your 600th birthday to prepare for it. Might you build an altar? Might you try to get your life right with God? Might you, might you go to that altar and say, you know, Lord, to avert what's coming, I want to give you something. Might you want to try to pay for your sin? This is how most people view the Older Testament. They view the Older Testament as paying for sin, sacrifice because of sin, and to pay for sin, you had to go kill a lamb and blah, 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 blah. No, it didn't build an altar before the flood. He built it after when the world was righteous again, he wanted to build an altar and sacrifice for Religion will tell you that you need to do religious things to pay for your sin. The Bible teaches the story of you do altar-type things to show God you are thankful for his salvation, not to earn it. Isn't it interesting? that Noah never built an altar prior to the flood. But after surviving the flood, he was filled with gratefulness. Our last scripture, if I told you last while ago, I lied. I told you sometimes that happens. Our last scripture is Colossians 3. Turn with me to Colossians 3. This really will be the last one. We're going to stand after we read it. And we're going to dismiss. There. There. Do you understand what happens when you get the altar before the flood? You've worked a righteousness of your own. But when you receive salvation, that makes you want to offer something. 
you're working because you're saved. See, Noah was righteous and walked with God. He didn't walk, and so he was declared righteous. He was righteous, and the righteousness caused walking with God. And then sons to be born. You know what else is like this? John 5, the man who is uh, at the pool, been there for 38 years. Anybody know that story? Yeah. yeah. It's not if you know the story. Yeah. Okay, for those of you that don't know the story, because not everybody not. You got to pay attention to He could not get down into the waters that would get him here. Angel stirred the waters, but always somebody got in ahead of him. This is man's inability to obtain righteousness, right standing, wholeness, health. We cannot do it. Jesus gave him freely what he could not get by saying, stand up and walk. But once the man received it, he had to carry his mat and walk. This is salvation. God puts you in right standing, something you could not do. And then he says, walk with me now and multiply yourself. This is a three-part calling in your lives. And it's echoed all over the world. Are you in Colossians? Yes. I think having this mic means that I don't have to yell. I feel like it's all mellow. Yell, brother. I don't know whether I like that or not. My throat will probably like it later. Your ears might as well. In Colossians 3, Colossians 3, uh, we're going to start in verse 16. I pray. No, I'm in Ephesians. That's why it didn't make sense to me. <laughs> Colossians 3, starting in 16. 15. How about that? Let the peace of Christ, the shalom of Christ, the right rule of God, rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Saints, you don't go do those things to be righteous. You don't go do those things to earn them or to get favor with God. You do those things out of gratefulness because He put you in right standing. You walk with Him because you want to be near Him. Well, that's a whole other message. If we're going to walk with God, it means we are near Him. And what does it look like when you walk with God? You do the things that God does because it places you near Him. His daughters. Maybe we'll speak about that soon, but I think Mother's Day is coming up, right? Right? Can some others say amen? Amen. Hey, you want to have a fun word study? Go look up the word compassion in Hebrew and see what it means. Uh, that's crazy. You should look that up. It has very feminine characteristics to it. And when God is said to be compassionate, but it's an interesting. Maybe I teach you about that next Sunday, or maybe you can learn it and teach me. Would that be cool? Do y'all want to eat? Let's yeah. your feet. Righteousness never affects just you any more than sin just affects you. The dirty little secret is that sin done in private still affects people. It affects people if you're the only one that knows about it. Affects people because it stains the creation. But the beautiful blessing is that righteousness also affects people. It does. It multiplies. It creates sons and daughters. It creates a positive movement called the kingdom of God. You have a choice. You're going to get to spread whichever one you want. You're going to get to participate in whatever kingdom you want to, and it is not an eternal decision. It starts today and lasts for eternity. If we live in hell now, we will certainly live in hell then. If we live in the rule of God now, we will always live in the rule of God. It will just manifest here in a more full way. Our topic today, Noah, was one righteous man, but how many people were saved? Eight in all. Noah's sons who were like him and Jim Jaffa, their wives, and the entire creation. 
all saved in pairs of two covenant. They were even saved in seven pairs of two. Perfect covenant. God preserved the world through righteousness. This is the legacy of the Jewish people. This, this doesn't matter. Sciences don't matter. Technology doesn't matter. Righteousness saves the world. Let's pray. Mighty God, we thank you. We thank you for your word that has been given to us through your servants. Lord, we ask that we would be not only credited with righteousness, but that we would walk in it. Lord, that we wouldn't just walk in it, but that we would multiply. We love you, mighty God. We want to fill the earth with your goodness. Mighty God, we want to subdue the earth in your name. Let your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we say, Amen. 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 Let's go.